Chapman, my first wife that died. And Sidney and Jack were spending some time with Grandma Ellen. This was a couple of weeks ago, and they went out to Kickapoo Park in Lincoln. And Ellen said, this is where Grandma Ellen and Grandpa used to bicycle and take walks before we got married. And Sidney, who is six years old, said, yeah, that's when you were dating, when you sat close to each other. <laughs> and then Sidney asked Ellen, do you think my grandma in heaven is happy about that? And Ellen said, you know, Sydney, I think she is happy with that because your grandpa was very lonely. When I was single, she's right, I was lonely. I was hungry for love. I couldn't stand to be alone. Well, today's story is about a woman that is alone. Not only did she lose her husband, but she lost her homeland. She's a foreigner, not an Israelite. It's the story of Ruth. My first question is, why is this story in here? It just doesn't seem to fit the storyline that we've had so far. Last week we saw that Judges was a time of a lot of sin and rebellion. It's one of the darker periods in the history of God's people. And then in the middle of that carnage of evil and violence and perversion, in fact, read Judges 19 sometime. It's just amazing how awful it got. And in the middle of that yucky sewage is this sweet, nice love story. And I think it's saying... Even with all the bad stuff going on around us, God is working, and there's still good people. In the midst of a declining culture, there's still a lot of good. A man named Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, has a wife named Naomi, and her name means sweet. She is his sweetheart. And they have two sons, and they have sort of Klingon, Star Trek Klingon names, Malon and Kilion, and their names actually mean sick and dying. So don't name your kids after Klingons. And what happens is that a famine comes into the land of Bethlehem. And as soon as you hear Bethlehem, what do you think about? Jesus' birth. Not chestnut. Jesus' birth. Uh, And that's a little clue as to why this is here. Anyway, Elimelech makes the decision to relocate his entire family to an area where the Moabites live. Now, um, do I have my pointer here? Yes, we do. This, of course, is the land of Canaan, Judah, you know, where the Israelites are at. And there's Bethlehem. And right over here is Moab, so they move over there in order to, uh, he wants to feed his family, but he has to move to a pagan land to do it. His sons grow up, and they marry two Moabite young women, two pagans named Ruth and Orpah. And what happens is utterly tragic. We don't know the details, but Elimelech dies, and then these two sons die, Malon and Kilian. Of course, their names mean sick and dying. And that leaves three women, all widows, all in destitute circumstances, and Naomi and has her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi hears about the Beth- famine in Bethlehem being over, so she wants to return home. She takes her two daughters-in-law, but as they begin the journey home, she starts thinking you know, that she has nothing to offer these young women, and they probably should not go to Bethlehem with her. She stops along the road and encourages Orpah and Ruth to return back to Moab. Orpah does return to her false religion in her old way. Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, goes back to paganism. But Ruth decides that she will continue to Bethlehem to be with her mother-in-law. She makes this beautiful statement, which is sometimes read at weddings on page 122. It's Ruth 1, 16 and 17. She says, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, if you are reading this at a wedding, and in the original meaning, the bride would actually turn away from the groom and turn to the mother-in-law and say, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Probably not a good idea. But anyway, that's beside the point. Ruth becomes a believer in God. 
through her mother-in-law. You know what the number one influence is in most people following Jesus? It's family. Number one reason people come to Jesus is family influence. So these two women make a journey home. Bethlehem is a small town, and the town's all buzz, wondering what Naomi's life has been like. Could this be Naomi? Is this the sweet one? Then page 122, down at the bottom, she says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. She's not happy with God. And she's changed her name to... Loose translation would be bitter old hag, okay? Naomi used to be sweet, now she's angry. She's gone from sweet to sour. God has brought this on me. It's God's fault. What's this story about? Well, it's about loss, for one thing. She loses her husband and her sons. She has no livelihood. Ruth loses her homeland and her husband. They're both losers. It's just about as bad as it can get. And some of you know about loss. You know about grief and disappointment. We have a lady in our church that has lost three kids to death. And another's lost two. Some have lost kids through miscarriages that we don't even know about. And of course, some have lost spouses and and parents. But does the story have to be about loss? Gerald Sitzer was in a car accident, hit by a drunk driver. He survived, but he lost three family members, three generations. He lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter. He lived, and he wrote about it in a book entitled A Grace Disguised, interesting title. And in it, he says, the experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment of our story. Our story does not have to be about loss. Now, it's part of the story, of course, and it was hard for Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. But as I read this story, the one word that describes this is not loss. It's redemption. She comes back empty, but God is at work redeeming her story, and she will be full again. Well, after they get to Bethlehem, it says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I found favor. Now, Moabite, remember, is a cold word for bad news. Ruth is from the bad side of town, sworn enemies between Israel and Moab. She's got nothing going for her. Ruth the Moabite goes out, finds a field, begins to glean behind the harvesters. Now, gleaning is the equivalent to social services. Gleaning was the food bank, the soup kitchen, the the food stamps of that day. God told his people back in the law, the land belongs to me, so if you own a piece of land, I actually own it. And when you harvest it, I don't want you to take all the food. You leave some of the grain so that the poor and the widow and the orphans and the oppressed and the needy can follow behind and find something to eat. So the Hebrew food bank was not just about giving a handout. It actually involved some work for the poor person too. They had to go out and do the gleaning. So this is the Hebrew welfare system. It might be better called a workfare system. The rich provided away and the poor went out and gleaned and worked for it. So verse 3 then, she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, Boaz, back in verse 1, is called a man of standing. In other words, he's wealthy, he's respected, and he'd be a great catch for any woman. And I just love the way this verse says it here. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Other versions say she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. As it turned out, it just so happened. Lucky her. What a coincidence. She happened to come to the field of Boaz, who is of the cl- just happened to be of the clan of Elimelech, a close relative. Now that's important because close relatives are the ones who could redeem family members. 
In Ruth, there's no miracles. It's another thing that makes us different from all the others. There's no parting the Red Sea. There's no pillar of fire, no falling walls. Things just happen. Ordinary stuff. In the classic movies, there's often a moment where the main male and female characters have a defining moment, the DTR, you know. Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Sound of Music, Star Wars. They, they come to a point where the man and the woman define where's this relationship going, what's this relationship mean. And there's another classic movie where this happens called Dumb and Dumber. Maybe not quite as classic. But Lloyd Christmas asked Mary, now Lloyd is head over heels in love with her, and he asked her, what are the chances we can get together? And she responds with two words, not good. And then she says, well, you mean, he says, you mean like one in a hundred not good? She says, more like one in a million. And Lloyd thinks about it and ponders upon it. So you're saying there is a chance. Yes! And he gets all excited. Well, the book of Ruth is where it may seem like a one in a million chance, but God says there's a chance. Ruth is from Moab. Moab's the sworn enemy of Israel, has been for years, and if you were to come to Ruth before this story plays out and ask her, hey, Ruth, what are the odds that one day you'll end up living among the Israelites back in Bethlehem? She'd say, not good. And what are the odds that you, a Moabite woman that worships Chemosh, will become a hero to the people of Israel? Not good. One in a hundred, not good, at least. And what are the odds that a book ends up in the Hebrew Bible with your name on it telling your story? And it's the only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Israelite. One in a hundred? More like one in a million. And what are the odds that your bloodline will be part of the greatest king in Israel, King David? One in a billion. And what are the odds that through your bloodline, the Moabite bloodline, would come the Messiah of the world? She said, you're on drugs. One in a trillion. No way. And God says, there's a chance. From our lower story eyes, things look impossible. God says, with me, all things are possible. There's always a chance. So this isn't luck. It isn't just so happens that she goes to the field of Boaz. This is providence. Sometimes God works through his visible hand of miracle and sometimes works through his invisible hand of providence. In fact, I'd say more often he works through providence. In the lower story, from the human perspective, is this hungry, homeless, broke girl. She goes out, looks at a bunch of fields, says, well, I guess I'll go and glean in that one. She makes a free will choice, goes to a particular field. You know, there's no angel that told her where to go. She wasn't led. There wasn't any miracle. She didn't see a burning bush that said, this is the one. You know, she just happened to pick a field. And in the upper story, though, is the gracious providing hand of God, orchestrating things. It doesn't mean that we don't make choices. Ruth did make choices, but it means that God is at work in our lives. And I find that so amazing, so exciting, so exhilarating, and so comforting. God is at work most of the time behind the scenes, quietly. And then verse 4, just then Boaz came from Bethlehem. Just so happens, lucky for her, just at the right moment, she happened to go there on the day that Boaz happened to be riding out in his Escalade to see how the business was going. And he happened to get out of the Escalade just in time when she happened to be working and happened to see it. Really? What are the chances? What in a million? Boaz sees Ruth for the first time. Ladies, what do you think she looks like? She look her best? Probably not. She's covered in dirt and mud. Hair's in a ponytail, no makeup. The one peasant dress she owns is covered in dirt and she's pitted out. This is not her finest hottie moment. Now, most ladies would say, you know, Boaz is coming. Rich, available Boaz. They say, well, give me four hours. 
you know, and a sandblasting and spray painting, you know, things like that. No, she's gross, pitted out, stink, dirt, been working in the field all day, and Boaz says, who's that girl? Well, that's that Moabite. She's one from the wrong side of town, and she came back with Naomi, the bitter mother-in-law, hard luck case. And then page 123, one of the foremen tells Boaz, she came to the field and was, has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. In other words, he said, she's worked hard all day long, just took a little rest. She's got a good work ethic. Just trying to make ends meet, trying to feed her bitter mother-in-law and herself. What's going to attract Boaz to Ruth is not her looks because she does not look great in the field. Later we find out what attracted him to her is her character. Hardworking, loyal to her mother-in-law. I've been married twice and two of the most important traits in a spouse are work ethic and loyalty. Ew, that doesn't sound romantic at all. You don't know how romantic I can be, but that's beside the point. But anyway, laziness and unfaithfulness are relational killers. Guys, you need to marry a woman that's not just attractive. Now, you need to be attracted, obviously. She would appreciate that too. But not just attracted physically. You've got to be attracted to character and work ethic and devotion to the Lord and loyalty. One preacher said, there are some women who are a good time and there are some women who are a good legacy. Boaz gets the legacy. Now, most guys say, well, she's hot. Well, so is hell. Is that what you want? You know, a lot of hotties are hell. So (laughs) you got to look beyond that and go to the character. So verse 8, they have their first conversation. Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along other along after the women, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars jars the men have filled. No pickup lines, not even Christian ones. You know, hey, Ruth, I was reading the book of Numbers and realized I didn't have yours. (laughs) You know, stupid stuff like that. None of that. But (laughs) I heard Randy Reeder tried that once, you know, but anyway. (laughs) Anyway. He says, Ruth, I got a nice field. Stick close to Bo. Bo knows gleaning. And you sit close and you'll be fine. You know, hang around the other women. And then we have the first sexual harassment policy in history. Okay, I told the men not to lay a hand on you. Because gleaning was often dangerous for women. Hey, boys, see that Moabite? Yeah, yeah, she's cute. Yeah, boy, I said, you touch her, no one will find your body. Got it? Okay. And when you're thirsty, he says, you drink what the young men have drawn. In that culture, being a Moabite woman, probably it'd be her job to serve the water to the men. Uh, that's her job. But he, he's saying, no, you let the men do the work. You sit there, and they'll give you something to drink. And it says, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Ancient Near Eastern custom, she bows down to him. Pretty cool, isn't it, guys? But... Anyway, she's respectful and grateful and saying, that was very nice of you. Usually, men and women have a list, either in their mind or actually made out, of what they're looking for in a wife or or spouse. How many guys would include pagan, homeless, broke, pitted out, stinky, dirty, with a bitter mother-in-law as a bonus? Probably not on most guys' list. Ruth looks at herself and says, I'm poor, I come with this Naomi baggage, I'm out here dumpster diving, and he's rich. And she wonders, why are you being so nice to me? Most guys are nice to a girl for one reason. Boaz says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. 
May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, your reputation precedes you. Everyone's talking about you've been loyal, you've been faithful, you're hardworking, you're a wonderful woman. And then she asks, he asks the Lord's blessing on her. Essentially, he's praying for her. In verse 12, he prays, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded. He's essentially saying, if I might extrapolate what he wants for her, Ruth, I pray that God would give you food and give you home and security and give you friends and love. And I pray that God would give you a husband and children. And I pray that God would bless you in every way that God can bless. Did God answer that prayer? Absolutely. Who did God send to answer that prayer? Of Boaz? Boaz. And I'm going to argue from this, based on this text, that sometimes we need to be the answer to our own prayers. Sometimes prayer moves the hand of God, but sometimes prayer should move us. We pray for these people who are going to Uganda this week that their needs will be met. Well, we should help answer that prayer, and many of you have, financially. We pray for orphans and those without parents, and some of you have been the answer to that prayer in one way or another. Boaz's prayer is that God would feed her, provide a home, God give her a husband, and he becomes that husband and provider. So often Christians pray for things that are not wrong to pray for, but we fail to act. I mean, how weird would it be if I went home and said, God, would you please send someone to hug my wife? She needs some hugs. And God said, uh, that's why you're there. That's your job. God, help my neighbor know Jesus. God says, well, maybe that's why it's your neighbor. That's why you're there. Lord, help that person who just lost a friend. You're the answer to your own prayer. Don't just pray. Let God use you. Jesus did the same thing on the cross. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. And what's Jesus do? He answers his own prayer by dying for the forgiveness of sins. Boaz prays for Ruth and then answers his own prayer. Verse 13 then. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. What she's saying is, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve all this goodness. I'm not even one of your servants. You don't owe me a thing, Boaz. Boaz does what the law requires. He allows the poor to glean in his field. But he's going way beyond the law. He's going all the way to grace. He's gone way beyond what she could have asked or hoped for or or even imagined. See, Boaz is a type of Jesus. The gospel is that you and I are Ruth. We're the pagans. We're the Moabites. We're the Gentile sinners from the wrong side of town, and we come to the Lord empty-handed and needy, and the Lord Jesus is our Boaz. That's really the gospel in a nutshell. One old-time preacher called Jesus our glorious Boaz. Boaz went beyond the requirements of the law to grace, and so the Lord Jesus gone beyond the law all the way to grace. And we found, to use the words of Ruth, favor in the eyes of the Lord. Well, Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a son, Obed has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, who becomes the greatest king of Israel, and through his line eventually comes Jesus, our Boaz. What are the chances? One in a million. Naomi's now blessed. She goes from sweetness to sour to saved. And from Naomi, we learn a lesson that God will honor perseverance. In a time of bitterness, it's hard. And she had no choice but to pick up herself and move back to Bethlehem and and just make do and for a season her life is not easy at one time life was sweet but now it's bitter and you just press on you just persevere some of you are in that sour time of life you're in a bitter time of life you just have to persevere one of our widow ladies wrote a poem and in fact I asked her to and she told me uh, she'd already written one for when she'd lost her husband and she's written a lot of poems the name's Pat Stroman many of you know her it's entitled why 
Why do you leave me all alone? Remember all the fun. You went away so suddenly, leaving good things left undone. Just days ago, you held my hand and kissed me as we walked along, while gazing into a setting sun, humming together a favorite song. The loneliness which haunts my soul still causes tears to flow. But love of my life, though sad it be, to live again, I must let go. With no more tears, no more sorrows, no more anguish, no sad tomorrows, released at last from this world's woes, you're with our Lord in sweet repose. Restored in spirit and happiness, may God's great gain fill my emptiness. As for now, though you dwell above, it's not the end of our perfect love. Naomi kept going. But love of my life, though sad it be, to live again, I must let go. I must keep going. And eventually, Naomi was blessed. Like Pat says, restored in spirit and happiness, my God's great gain fill my emptiness. If you know Jesus, you will be blessed forever. More than you can imagine, from sweet to sour to saved. From Ruth, God will honor character and humble devotion. Ruth had no power, no wealth. She was a foreigner. But what she did have was her integrity, her humble devotion, her work ethic, her loyalty. And it is so tempting to lose your character when things start going wrong and life is unfair and things stink. But if you hang on to your character, you hang on to your dignity. Ruth had nothing except who she was. And God honored that. And God will honor your perseverance and your character. And then from Boaz, God will honor generous compassion. Boaz saw a need and he responded to it just like Jesus does. What Boaz did for Ruth was not cheap. He sacrificed time, money, resource. He protects, he provides like Jesus. He was being Jesus to Ruth and you be Jesus to others. You provide, you protect, and you be kind and generous. And maybe that kindness means actually helping with money or, or food or maybe it means letting someone borrow your car or even giving them your car or letting them crash at your house or bringing groceries to them. If they're in the hospital or nursing home, it means visiting them. Even if you don't have much, you can still be generous. You can find a way to be generous. You can be a Boaz. Persevere like Naomi. Maintain your character like Ruth. Be generous and kind like Boaz. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this story. Um, I thank you for the gift of love. And thank you for the examples that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are for us. But even more, more deeply, we thank you for the message of saving grace that is in this story. And that we all come to you empty-handed. And that Jesus is our Boaz, our Redeemer. He paid the price for our salvation, sacrifice for us. And Lord, may we let that flow through us and that we would be Boaz to those around us. Compassionate generosity. Lord, may you be honored in our lives, whether we're going through a sweet time or a sour time. May you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. God loves us all. But he has a special place.